Well, good morning once again. Thanks, Dennis, for leading us in worship. Uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. Short piece of text, but really fantastic one. So you can head there if you have a Bible or an electronic device. Before I read that passage, though, just uh, one more announcement that our men's retreat that was scheduled for a few weeks has been canceled. We just got notification from Pines that they're canceling all retreats effective immediately. I think they had some uh, issues regarding personnel that weren't able to be there. We we didn't really get any details. We were just contacted by the uh, administrator and said, I just got the note from on high saying everything's canceled until the spring. So we've put in a, a request to be one of the first on the board for a spring retreat. And uh, we might maybe do something the Friday night or Saturday. Just kind of keep your eyes open in the Summit newsletter that goes out and uh, on Facebook on our church page. And, and we'll try and let you know if there's anything else happening. But the actual men's retreat has been canceled. Okay, Mark 7, verses 24 to 30. I'm going to read through it, then we'll teach through it. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. I'm really, decided I, I'm really glad I decided to teach verse by verse through the book of Mark, because this is an encounter that would have been easy for me to sideline or skip over. But instead I've been forced to steep in this text for a little over a week, and my faith in Jesus' goodness and is, uh, is stronger than ever. There's a lot of treasure here and powerful lessons for all of us. Okay, let's go through it. Verse 24, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. If you put the map up, this is, Tyre is kind of an upper left-hand corner. You can see Sidon at the top of, of this map. Green means territory that's controlled by the Romans but has strong Jewish influence. Lots of synagogues and uh, Salted with lots of Jewish influence. Kind of the, the brownish hue is predominantly, the vast majority, Hellenized, which means um, Greek worldview with very little Jewish worldview. Uh, not, not none, but very, very little. Predominantly Gentile, completely Hellenized um, territories, meaning they adopted the worldview of Alexander the Great, man is the center of all things, and the measure of all things and the goal of all things, and the glorification of all things. And so this is Gentile territory. Jesus has left Jewish territory, and he's going into territory where there is very, very little Jewish presence. He enters a house. He doesn't want anyone to know it, so a lot of commentators say this is Jesus trying to get away, find some rest, find some breathing space, because as you know, as his ministry has progressed in Gentile-controlled Ter- or sorry, a Jewish, uh, Jewish territory, Jewish religious leaders are increasingly antagonistic towards what he's saying. He's stirring up a lot of controversy, so he goes to a Gentile, predominantly Gentile territory, hopefully he gets some rest, some space, but he can't keep his presence secret. Word has been spreading all over the land because of his miracles, because of his teachings. 
But notice he goes to Tyre, and that means that he's not just going into Gentile territory. He's going into the belly of the beast, so to speak. Uh, Gentile, sorry, Tyre is pretty famous. It's, it's a city that comes up again and again in the Old Testament. Some of the strongest prophetic denunciations recorded in Scripture, uh, you can talk about them in your home group this week. I have you reading them. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, they're aimed at the city of Tyre. Tyre was an inc- incredibly wealthy state. It had, uh, as you can imagine, a land trade via the, on the Via Maris, which ran, ran along the coastline. And then you had, obviously, uh, boat trading. I, I can't think of the name for that. What's the proper name for boat trading? Ports, thank you. Um, which fueled its economy in all kinds of ways and opened up a, a huge swath of economic opportunities for them. But it was also a city that was known to be incredibly corrupt, it, where oppression and exploitation was just the name of the game. And so Tyre comes under tremendous scrutiny by the prophets as the embodiment of a city that's kind of the embodiment of what happens when a whole group of people say, we're going to try and do life together, but we're going to reject the living and the true God. So this is a really bad place that Jesus is heading into. Verse 25, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrophoenicia, and she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Now, remember the context. We, we didn't talk about Mark last week, but in the week before, Jesus had just taught about cleanness and uncleanness. What makes a person unclean? And he had said, it's not what goes into the body. It's not what comes from outside that ultimately corrupts. Corruption emanates from the human heart. And that teaching is going to be put to the test because Jesus and his disciples are now encountering someone who by all the Jewish standards of the day is unclean on almost every single level. First of all, this woman is a Greek She's thoroughly pagan. She's, been her, she's made her dwelling and home likely in Tyre or in one of the most pagan Hellenized cities in the world. Jewish people saw all Gentiles as unclean. Anybody who would adopt an anti-God worldview or worldview that just didn't even have Yahweh at the center was unclean. So she's a Greek. She's a woman. That's strike number two. Jewish people did not expect much faith from pagans and even less from pagan women. She was uh, part of Syrian Phoenicia. She was born likely in Syria, which on the map was a little bit more up and to the right. I put the map on there to remind people that the accounts that we read about in the Bible are actually like true historical things. They're not just stories grabbed. Like these are, you can go to these places today and see, oh, Jesus walked here. He taught this here. This is where this happened. This woman was born in Syria, lived in Phoenicia, which is part of the state that Tyre and Sidon were a part of. So that means she's a foreigner, she's Greek, she's a woman, she's probably a widow, which doesn't make her unclean, but it makes her tremendously economically vulnerable. We don't know for sure that she's a widow, but she's approaching Jesus. There's no head of the household in that context that is doing it. She's doing it on behalf of her little daughter. And the text there is important, little daughter. Uh, It doesn't say daughter. There's a word that means child, which can mean a child of any age. But there's a preface in the Greek that means little daughter. And most commentators would say, this means like a toddler. 
So think of Avery, my little Avery, age three. This is a mother whose little daughter has an evil spirit, but more importantly, the better translation is unclean spirit. Translators usually will take unclean and translate it evil because people in our context don't have the same punch of what an unclean spirit would mean. But it's actually a woman who has a little daughter who's in bondage to an unclean spirit. She's a widow. Some commentators draw a parallel between what's happening here in 1 Kings 17 where Elijah meets a widow in Seraphath, which is in this vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. And Elijah saves her son. And so some people say, hey, this is maybe kind of a parallel story to that. This is a new Elijah who's coming to bring healing and restoration to another widow in this region. She's economically vulnerable. Again, she has a daughter with an unclean spirit. And in the parallel account in Matthew 15, this is really, really telling. In Matthew 15, it says that she's a Canaanite woman. It says a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, have mercy on me, my daughter is suffering from demon possession. Now Canaanites, in case you don't know, in the Old Testament are like the big baddies of the Old Testament. They're the culture which is what would happen if people come together and human depravity kind of goes unchecked and they just pursue what seems right in their own eyes. And all throughout the Old Testament, the Canaanites are held up as kind of the example of what an anti-God, anti-human, anti-life, destructive, aggressive, violent, exploitative culture looks like. She's, she's, a, she's a Canaanite. Canaanites are also the culture that worship the gods Baal and Molech. Molech is the god in the Old Testament who demands child sacrifice. Israel's kings at different times fall prey to worshiping Baal and Molech in the high places, they kind of dance with, yeah, I'm a believer in Yahweh, but I'm going to hedge my bets. And there's kind of good stuff in these other religions too. So I'll kind of play both sides of the fence. In Second Chronicles 28.3, Ahaz, king of Judah, comes under fierce condemnation because it says that this is one of Judah's kings who actually participates in child sacrifice. And there's just complete condemnation for it, as you might expect in the Old Testament. So this is a Canaanite woman. So on so many levels, this woman is unclean. She is unworthy. But she is also desperate. She's got a little girl who's in a terrible kind of bondage. And recognize why she's coming to Jesus. She's coming to Jesus because probably, who knows how many thousands of hours of prayer to her pagan gods. Maybe they were Greek, the Greek gods, maybe she would have reached back deeper into her ancestry and out of desperation reached out to the gods of Baal and Molech. But she has reached out to these gods and they've been silent. Psalm 115 says this about the gods of the other nations. Their idols are silver and gold. They're made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. Noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. This woman is coming to Jesus because her gods have utterly failed her. Let me ask you a question this morning. What are you going to do when your gods utterly fail you? I don't mean the little 
temple pagan gods you might, that people have in their home. Not, not idolatry on that kind of level. I mean the more seductive gods that our culture says this is what you trust in. Money, sex, power, pleasure, yourself. What are you going to do, not if, it's not a matter of if, when those gods fail you? This woman was wise. And she said, I'm going to go to Jesus. Bruce Clank and I are launching in a few weeks a men's online study group on Facebook. And we're going to go through Timothy Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. That's open to any guys that are here. And we're just going to have a reading schedule. We'll read it online. You can throw up ideas or insights that you have. Pray for one another. And once in a while, we'll just get together to pray for each other. But that's the first book that we're going to be looking at. It's, you can buy it through Amazon. You can get it on Kindle really cheap. If you want more information about that, let me know. But I really encourage guys to be a part of that because it's a fantastic book that will give you new insights into the false gods that call to us as a culture and maybe specifically call to us as men because it's looking at uh, the false gods of money, sex, and power. Let's continue. She begged Jesus to drive the demons out of her daughter. The verb there implies ongoing. Matthew makes this much more clear. Matthew says she kept asking. Mark says she begged, she kept on begging Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Jesus did not answer a word. Think about this for a second. This is a mother in tears. Who knows what she's had to pass through over the last few months, years, weeks, days. She's coming to Jesus. She's desperate. She's crying out to him from maybe outside of the house or in the doorway. Someone's trying to hold her back, crying, please help me, help me, help me. No response from Jesus. That's weird. We don't, we don't encounter many stories like this in the Bible. Certainly not in the Gospels. His disciples urged, came to Jesus and urged him, send her away because she keeps crying out after us. Whether they're saying, just give her what she wants and get her out of here, or just send her away because she doesn't even deserve the time of day. She's that kind of a person. It doesn't matter. The point is the disciples see her simply as a nuisance. They don't see her as an opportunity for grace and mercy. They just see her as a tremendous annoyance. And it's like, I mean, think about how hard-hearted you would have to see to see this mother crying out on behalf of her daughter and being like, having the posture of your heart be like, really, seriously, can you keep it down? We're trying to get some rest. Like, hey, Jesus, like maybe you should tell her to beat it because like, we're here to chill. This is a real condemnation towards the heart of the disciples. Verse 24, Jesus finally answers, maybe her, but likely specifically his disciples. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Sounds pretty harsh. Sounds very exclusive. But Jesus is making it clear his primary mission was to preach the gospel to Israel, to God's people. There is going to come a time, we read about that in Acts, where the gospel is going to explode and go to the ends of the earth, but now is not the time. New Testament professor N.T. Wright says, this story is a sharp reminder to us that Jesus wasn't simply called to go around being helpful to anyone and everyone. That wasn't his mission. He had very specific and very controversial things he had to accomplish in a very limited amount of time. And he sets 99% of his energy on calling Israel to repentance and preaching the gospel to them. 
because, as he says in John 4.22, salvation is of the Jews. Salvation was always meant to start with God's people, chosen people, and then go out to other people. So salvation is of the Jews. It's not only for the Jews. Salvation is for the whole world, but it's to start with Israel. Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He doesn't send, I was only sent for them. He sent for everybody, but he was sent to them. So he's creating this context where he's saying, I'm, my mission isn't just to go around and help people indiscriminately. I actually have an agenda. My agenda is for the Jews and then to the world. Stage one is calling Israel to repentance and to give allegiance to, the, to her true king. And then he says this statement. So if it wasn't awkward enough or challenging or strange enough or seemingly rude enough, there's this. Jesus says to the woman, first let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Some commentators say, hey, maybe that's, a par- that's, that's like a little parable of Jesus. He's simply saying, when you eat, and if you have house pets, you don't feed your house pets and then give the remainder to the children. You give the children the food, and then if there's crumbs, the pets can eat that. The problem, the term dog is a loaded term in the first century context, because Jews called Gentiles dogs. And this woman is a very, uh, she's a, a Gentile of Gentiles, so to speak, right? She's thoroughly unclean. She's thoroughly unworthy. Now, the word dog, there are two dogs. There's kind of a street dog, and there's a lap dog, a pet dog, and Jesus uses that word, not the street dog, kind of like the mangy mutt that we would say. It is in reference to a more domesticated animal, and it's a, it's a diminutive term, so it's a smaller dog, like a pet dog, but there's still a sting there. It absolutely would have been felt by this woman. Jesus is saying, Israel, the children of God, are supposed to benefit from God's rule first before anyone else gets to benefit from his rule. The kingdom of God breaks in to and through Israel. And so he makes this illustration before the pets get fed, before the rest of the world gets fed, the children get first claim. The Jewish people get first claim on the benefits of God's kingdom. Seems harsh. Look at her response. Verse 28. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying in the bed and the demon gone. Three things I want to I want you to notice about this. Number one, look at the approach. In Matthew 15, in Matthew's account, that tells us it was a Canaanite woman, in verse 22, it says, when the woman approaches Jesus, she cries out saying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. She recognizes Jesus as Lord. She uses the term son of David which is a thoroughly Jewish term in reference to the coming Jewish Messiah. Remember, she's a total pagan. She's a Canaanite, stone-cold pagan. But she is correctly identifying who Jesus is, and she simply comes throwing herself on his mercy. Have mercy on me. She recognizes Jesus' authority and his power, but yet she has, and she has total humility. There's, there's no spiritual entitlement on her part at all. This is not her coming and saying, hey, Jesus, I'm in a situation, what can you do for me? 
hey, I've been uh, Molech. I, I kind of I have Canaanite ancestry. I worship false gods. Totally willing to switch to your team. What can you do for me? That is not her posture. She is saying, I recognize you are an authority. I know who you are. She correctly identifies Jesus, where thus far in Mark, almost nobody within Israel has been able to do that. The religious leaders don't know who he is. The disciples are still trying to figure out, here is this unclean, by any standard of, that a Jewish, a Jewish person would hold, unworthy woman, and she totally approaches Jesus the proper way. I spent the first four years of my Christian life in the Anglican church, and there was a great prayer that we prayed every time before we took communion. It was called the Prayer of Humble Access by the Book of Common Prayer. It was written by Thomas, uh, Thomas Cranmer, and this is how it goes. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not, so, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, O Lord, but you are the same, whose property is to always have mercy. And we see in her approach to Jesus that this is actually the only way to become a Christian, first of all, and it's the only way to sustain vibrancy in your Christian life. You have to come to Jesus humbly. You have to come to Jesus on his terms, not on your terms. You can't come to Jesus demanding any kind of rights. You can't come with any kind of spiritual entitlement. I'll go this far if you're willing to meet me halfway, Jesus. It has to be complete and utter and total surrender. Not just to become a Christian, to repent and say, all my past, I lay it all down, I now need your forgiveness and new life, and I'm moving forward. But as we move forward, this is still the pattern. Daily, weekly, on a Sunday, we come and say, have mercy on us. We, we don't presume to come here and worship with hands held high because of our righteousness. It's because of your mercy, God. You are so good. We come humbly. The Jewish leaders, Jewish leaders don't approach Jesus humbly. They come with spiritual entitlement, and they get nothing but condemnation from Jesus. And yet this unclean, unworthy, desperate woman who, who's offering nothing to Jesus, she, she's bringing no, nothing to the table, receives tremendous mercy because she has faith in Jesus' saving power, and she comes humbly. The second thing I want us to notice is the test that happens here. Now, some people reading this passage, I didn't see it. Uh, I had to have commentators pull this out because I, I didn't notice it at all. There's a test happening here, and you're like, I don't, what test? There's, I don't see anything. And this is what understanding a first century Jewish context, why this is so helpful and important for not understanding all of the Gospels, but some of these trickier passages that at first pass seem almost offensive and, and certainly we don't know how to make heads or tails of them. When you read a story like this, when you read this story in the context of the gospel, even though what comes up is things like, it seems like Jesus is being rude, he's using this parable about dogs, she's desperately crying out to him and he's ignoring her, is he being rude and different, is he apathetic, is he just exhausted? can seem like that at face value, but when you look at the rest of the, of the Gospels, it can't, it can't be that. Jesus never turns away someone who's desperate. He never turns his back on someone who's genuinely needy. So there has to be something else going on here, and that's a clue that should cause us to dig a little bit deeper. And indeed, there is something very, very interesting going on here. 
In Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, When you search for me, you will find me. If you search for me with your whole heart. That's the condition. When you search for me, you will find me if you seek me with your whole heart. Scholar Glenna Jackson notes that the Jewish scriptures have always upheld the idea that people have to wrestle with God in order to extract both intimacy with God and the blessings of God. The term Israel means one who wrestles with God. The people of God are identified as those who wrestle with God. You have major characters in the Old Testament, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Elijah, who at different times in their life argue with God, petition God. They get into dialogues that to us seem rude, but they're feisty and they're insistent and they're petitioning God for something. And in the Jewish scriptures, that's seen as a good thing. That's not seen as disrespectful. It's seen as a very, very good thing. In Psalm 6, for example, there are four petitions that, um, that the psalmist cries out to God before he receives an answer to prayer. The first one is, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath. Don't chastise me in your anger. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, O Lord, and then, O Lord, deliver my soul. Save me for your mercy's namesake. Then in verse 9, the psalmist says, The Lord has heard my prayer. And this pattern of petition, wrestling with God, struggling with God, fighting into God, carried over to the first century where those who were seeking to convert to Judaism from a Gentile background had to display this kind of tenacity. One Jewish text relates that a would-be convert regardless of the circumstances, must be told three times in a, in a row to go away. I'd like to convert to Judaism. Nope. No, seriously, like, I've done a lot of my homework. I've, I've reformed my life. I've repented of false gods. Nope. Please, please, no. Three times, automatically, turn them away. If they come back for the fourth, you let them in. Fourth time's a charm. There's a famous story of a Gentile coming to Rabbi Shammai, and the Gentile says, uh, Rabbi, can you teach me the totality of God's commands while I stand on one foot? And what he meant by that is, I can only stand on one foot for so long. So I don't have, a, I don't have time to, like, you to get into all the stuff and God and Yahweh. Can you just, like, give me the Coles notes? And the rabbi sent him away. And the rabbi says, I won't teach anybody who's not seeking God with their whole heart. I won't teach anybody who wants Cole's notes on God. I won't teach anybody who simply will do this as long as it fits into their life. If you are not willing to radically reorient your entire life around the true and living God, there's the door. Totally okay. I want you to think about that context that history. I want you to overlay that on this story. A Gentile woman who's done her homework. She knows who Jesus is. She comes, Lord, Son of David, will you have mercy on me? She keeps crying out. Jesus doesn't say anything. Keeps crying out. Keeps crying out. The disciples send her away. She keeps crying out. She keeps crying out. Then he responds. This is a woman. We're supposed to see. This is a woman who has abandoned all of her gods. 
She's turned her back on her worthless idols. She's sought out knowledge about the Jewish Messiah somehow in a very pagan territory. She spent time, energy, and money researching and finding out who this Jesus is. She knows who Jesus is, even though everyone else is puzzled. She recognizes his authority and his power. She's done her homework, and she's, she knows that if she gets to him, he will extend mercy to her daughter, but she has to come humbly because he's the Lord. He doesn't owe her anything, nor does she have any leg to stand on. She, all she can do is throw herself at his feet. And Jesus is actually bypassing her immediate request, will you heal my little girl? And he's pulling her into a struggle and a wrestle that implicitly is asking the question, you came here for your daughter, but I have a question to ask you. Do you want to be a disciple? Do you want to follow me? He is extending her an opportunity. No one else would have afforded her. And it is a tremendous opportunity. Here's one application out of this. Think about the chutzpah this woman has to have to do what she did. Think about the daring, bold, tenacious, I will not let you go until you bless me kind of faith this woman had to have had. I mean, think of the life changes that she's going to have to abandon when she says yes to Jesus. She's going to go back to Tyre. Social circles, economic circles, religious circles, her entire life is going to be turned right side up, but to everyone else it's going to look like upside down, and she's going to face all kinds of struggles, but she doesn't care anymore. She's come to the place of desperation. She now knows who Jesus is, and she's like, I want this. I am willing to fight for this. Are you, am I, are we seeking God with our whole heart? Are we animated by that kind of fire? Or are we, uh, what's the least I could do today to honor God and yeah, I'm busy. I got my life, so let's make it snappy. I want to follow Jesus, but like not too close. I want to be generous, but not in a way that hurts. I want to be loving in a way that doesn't really demand too much of me. I'm certainly willing to pray, but not in a way that would take away time from entertainment and other things that I just love doing. This woman says all those things are secondary. I'm going to fight for this. She has tremendous chutzpah. She's willing to have total commitment to Jesus. And Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, says that she has great faith. He says, whoa, woman, great is your faith. He's surprised. Imagine, the, imagine how surprised the disciples are. I mean, first of all, it wouldn't even have occurred to them. Their, their objection is maybe someone like this shouldn't even be give, granted healing at all. Now they have to wrestle with the question, Jesus is inviting her into discipleship? Are there seriously no boundary markers on who can be a disciple? She's a woman, Syrian, Greek, pagan, Canaanite. Like, she has all the strikes against her, and she's allowed to be a disciple? That would have been hard for them, because we all kind of have this idea of like, yes, anybody can come to Jesus, but there are kind of some people who just automatically are disqualified because of their past. No, absolutely not. 
we need to be a church, we need to be a people that has chutzpah. I talked last week about a gospel ecosystem, about wanting to be part of a movement within this city, within this church, where we're, um, we're just bringing the gospel and, and we're living out a daring faith in all kinds of uh, spheres of society, parenting, finances, prayer. But we need people a gospel ecosystem like this is not going to be created and it will not be sustained if, if the kingdom of God, if Christianity, if Jesus is our hobby. Christianity is a terrible hobby. But I know the calls to my heart and how easy it can be to slip into that mode where I have my life and then I try and figure out how to fit God in instead of saying, God, my focus today is to seek your kingdom, your righteousness through all that I do, and I'll let all the other stuff find its place. But the way this gospel ecosystem gets initiated, the way it sustains itself, is by people who are saying, I have a vision for this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to press into God. I'm going to take this risk. I'm going to do this. I'm going to give this way. I'm going to sacrifice this way. I'm going to serve this way. And I'm not going to let go until God blesses it. I'm not just going to do it and at the first sign that it's hard, ooh, this is hard, this is inconvenient, this is troubling, this is, this is uh, taxing, I'm out. No, you fight. Israel, the people of God, we're the new Israel, we're the church, but we're still the new people of God who wrestle with God. That's where our identity comes from. I love, when you think about the, from the perspective of the, of the disciples, how amazing this is, right? I mean, the disciples... Maybe the penny doesn't drop for all of them, but hopefully for a few of them, they're starting to realize that your past does not define you once Jesus looks you in the eye and says, follow me, and you say yes. Your past is, is taken care of. I mean, it's such an amazing message of hope. There's a lot of people who feel like they can't follow Jesus or their, their discipleship to Jesus now moving forward is hindered. They self-hinder. They self-sabotage themselves because there are these skeletons in their closet. No one came to Jesus with more skeletons in their closet than this woman, probably. And Jesus tests her. says, you came for your daughter, but I, I see something in you. I, I want to use you. And she rises to that challenge. Doesn't take offense. She acknowledges everything that Jesus says. Is willing to work with him? Yep, totally. I get it. Israel first. But even crumbs fall off the table. And I, I can get access to that, can't I? And Jesus is like, oh, that's so good. That's, that's real faith. No defensiveness, no pride, no spiritual. How dare you infer that I'm a dog? She's totally surrendered to Jesus. And Jesus, in a sense, is saying, follow me. And that means her past and all of the accumulated sin of her ancestry and all those issues are now in a rearview mirror. And the last thing I want you to see is the gift. Because if you're just reading this encounter... Just, just this text, it's going to be tempting to think that the healing of the daughter is the miraculous gift that's the climax of the story. There it is. And the end is the daughter's demon is removed. Jesus doesn't even have to go there. He just says it'll be gone by the time you get home. And it's gone. That is a powerful gift. And it is a powerful testimony to God's goodness and to God's mercy. But it actually doesn't compare to the gift that's alluded to in the story itself and in Jesus' little parable where he says in Mark 7, verse 27, 
First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now remember the overarching thing of what's happening. Jesus is inviting this unclean, unworthy foreigner, this Greek pagan Canaanite woman to a place at the table in the kingdom of God. On what basis can Jesus do that? On what basis can Jesus Jesus extend an invitation like that to someone like this? Someone this unclean, this unworthy. And it's because on the cross, the actual child of God, like the son of God, who knew no sin, who deserved the finest food at that table, was cast away from the table and didn't even get a crumb. The child of God was cast from the table so that those who are dogs, who don't deserve a place at the table, could be, draw, could be brought near, could be adopted into the family. Not even coming to the table as dogs, but come to the table as sons and daughters of God. Put another way, the child became a dog so that we could become sons and daughters at the table. And now, because of what Jesus has done, there is a seat at the table for us, for anybody. And particularly for those who, through their life experience, have presumed that there couldn't be because they're so unclean, because they're so unworthy. Instead, this story teaches us to take our cue from the Syrian woman so that we too, in the words of Hebrew 4.16, can approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. God, your word continually challenges us on so many levels, God, and I thank you for this encounter. I thank you for a grace and a love that enables anybody, regardless of their background, to find new life in you. I thank you, God, that you invite anyone, even those that the world looks at and says, send them away. What a loser. What a worthless person. And yet you call those very people You use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Thank you for doing that for me. Thank you for doing that for all of us here. And God, if there's someone here who is hearing this for the first time, may the truth of it, Holy Spirit, drive it deep into their heart. We love you, God. Help us to worship you now out of a broader awareness of your grace and love towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. As you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you live in the awareness that when the world sought to send you away, Jesus welcomed you. And may you live in the awareness that your identity is rooted in Jesus and his call and nothing in your past. And may you boldly share the news 
to those who see themselves as unclean, unworthy, who see themselves as dogs in the eyes of the world, that they are immeasurably valuable to Jesus and he has made a place for them at God's table of salvation and joy. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless. Have a great Sunday.